Welcome to the Victorious Souls Podcast with self-love coach, Danielle Burnock. Things happen in our lives that make us feel powerless. But Danielle believes that anyone can become a victorious soul by reclaiming what belongs to them, their value, their belovedness, and their God-given superpower. The Victorious Souls Podcast is dedicated to empowering you to rise up, reclaim, and embrace the change from survive to thrive as a victorious soul through the power of love. And now, here's that lady on the internet who loves you, Danielle. And welcome to Victorious Souls Podcast with me, your host, Danielle Burnock from DanielleBurnock.com, that lady on the internet who loves you, connecting you to the love that heals so you can love yourself from Survive to Thrive. Today, I have with me my guest, Jerry Dugan. I'm real excited to get into this story. We were chatting a lot before this started, but he is a man who has overcome so much, not only in his childhood, but also as an adult. He's an army veteran. He was a combat combat medic. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. But he's also a podcaster and the CEO of BTR Impact LLC. So welcome to the show today, Jerry. I'm so happy to have you. Oh, man, Danielle, I'm glad to be here. Um, I almost forgot we were here to record. Like, we were just chit-chatting. And I'm like, yeah, this is cool. We're like, oh, we probably should get started. We're going to run out of time. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Uh, so as I, I told our guests, our our listeners, not you're my guest. <laughs> and see, here I am tripping over myself. And I'm going to pause for my listeners again. So if you're kind of a new listener with me, I'm one of those people who does not edit out all my mishaps and all my stumbles for the very specific reason for you to know I'm a person and I make myself vulnerable like that on purpose because there's too much expectation of perfection in the world. So you get me, the warts and all, as they say. So as I tripped over and couldn't pronounce some words, you know, it'll happen again, but this is me. So Jerry, you have overcome so much as I was telling everyone. Let's start in childhood. Tell it, unpack your childhood for us. I know there's a, a lot in there. We were, like you said, we were chatting ahead of time. We were almost going to just chat all day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so growing up, I was an army brat. So born, raised, and trained is is the, uh, I guess, what it stands for. My dad was in the army, military policeman, and uh, I was born in Fort Sill, Oklahoma. So my dad, being this you know white guy from California, married the love of his life, uh, somebody he met when he was stationed in Thailand during the Vietnam War. So um, so I got the, the, the stereotypical tiger mom. Uh, so what does that mean? You know, it means when you're two or three years old, you start learning to write. You start learning your shapes. You're not even in preschool yet, but there's this expectation that you're the top of the class. Like, mm. you know your letters when the kids are just learning how to not eat paste. <laughs> 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 but I want to eat paste too. I want to be like all the normal kids. <laughs> and, uh, so <laughs> eat paste. They don't even make paste anymore, do they? I I think they do. And then they even put non-toxic on the label. So, so they can eat paste and not die. <laughs> yeah. It's good. it's good for you. It's non-toxic. <laughs> Just like Play-Doh. 
Yeah. Oh man. One of my army buddies said that. I'm like, that's not how that works. You sure you're not a Marine? You're like, there's some crayon. Uh, yeah. That but... brat that you said that the acronym, I've never heard that before. That's actually stands for something. Yeah. Born. Yeah. I, I just trained. thought it was something. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and it turns out there's a lot of data to show that uh, kids who grew up in the military, uh, they tend to have, they, they, they tend to sit on, the ends of a spectrum in terms of like relationship building and resilience, they're either very good at making new friends, building rapport and a sense of immediacy or extremely introverted. And they don't like meeting new people. They don't like things to change. Uh, and, and there's not a whole lot in the middle. You're either really mm -hmm. good at it or you're really horrible at it mm -hmm. in terms of meeting new people. And I, I guess I fortunately lean more towards the, I'm good at meeting new people. You know, people tell me that they feel like they've known me forever. And I'm like, well, it comes from a lifetime of having to make new friends every six months. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't think I would have fared well. I probably would have uh, been on the other side. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then a good uh, number of military brats or you know, military kids uh, wind up taking up work or a profession that is in the public sector. So mm -hmm. joining the military, a lot of folks in the military, their parents were uh, they served, um, you know, they, a lot of folks you find in government, local government, even, you know, state and federal government, uh, whether it's paid staff or elected official, there is probably somebody in their life who, who had served in the military. And, um, it's a lot of influence for, you know, a group of folks only make up less than 3% of the U S population. So it's, wow. it's interesting to see that my dad's career had that impact on me because I, I wound up doing the one thing he said not to, which was join the army he's like do whatever you want with your life just do not join the army <laughs> like okay dad i can follow that and then four years later oh no, no like eight years later um like hey dad guess what he's like what i joined the army dead silence i'm like dad you there he goes yeah, yeah i'm here are you going in as an officer since you, you're coming out of college no dad i'm going in enlisted just like you more silence and i've it's rare i've left my dad speechless but twice in that one conversation i left him speechless so um, wow. uh, yeah <laughs> but yeah going back to my childhood uh, lots of expectation from my mom to to be perfect so to hear you talk to your audience earlier about the importance of letting go of perfection letting errors be there be human mm -hmm. huge because for the first gosh 13 or so years of my life i i didn't feel like i could you know, be imperfect and be normal and be human. Like it was, it was so ingrained in me that I had to be perfect. I had to be the best in my class. I had to have the highest grade on any quiz or test. Uh, and, and a lot of that was because if I didn't, I kind of got punished. I got pulled out of extracurricular activities. I was told I needed to study more. Um, and all from a place of, you know, love in a sense, because I mean, in my mom's culture, that's how you show love. You, you push your kids to be the best because they're going to have to be on their own and they're going to have to rely on their own skills and their own knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the better they do in school, the more likely they'll get into a law school or a medical school and be a wealthy professional. And, and that was like the sign of success. And if you can get your kids into one of these professions, then you did your job as a parent. And it didn't matter what the cost was to get them there. You got to get them there. And, you know, so what's the cost? You, you, you wind up with kids who kind of resent you because it's like, mm -hmm. man, I just wanted my mom to say I love you. And 
all she could say was, you know, do your homework. <laughs> yeah, go do your homework. Go back to your room. <laughs> uh, don't talk back to your mother. And uh, and you kind of see that impact there. And then my dad, you know, very loving guy. He just very socially awkward guy. So he didn't really know how to express himself and and remind his wife that he loves her and let. He, he was good about demonstrating to my brother and I that he loved us. Very sacrificial. His actions really spoke louder than his words. Mm. Um, you know, he, he said love through time. You know, it's like by spending time with us, by letting us hang out with him, by treating us to a hamburger when my mom was very strict, no fast food. Uh, <laughs> we knew if we hung out with dad, there'd be this little secret between dad and I or dad and my brother uh, that we got a hamburger or a cheeseburger before we came home. <laughs> and no matter what, you got to eat your dinner and you cannot rat dad out that we went out for fast food um, on occasion though. I think my mom knew though, because I mean, we didn't eat as much at dinner. She's like, what's wrong? You like spaghetti. You know, I don't, you put onions in it. No, that's not true. I'm like, there's an onion. <laughs> that's what I'm <laughs> like, what? Um, but yeah, very, very strict childhood for me. Uh, my dad was like the good cop to my mom's bad cop kind of dynamic. Um, but yeah, 11 years old, uh, my brother was nine and that's when my mom let us know our, our dad was in Germany getting housing for us. We were in California, a little tiny podunk post called Fort Hunter Liggett. It's a training area, such a skeleton crew on that post that they didn't even have a housing area for the families. You had to stay in a trailer park outside the gate. So, yes, I can say in my lifetime, I lived in a trailer park, uh, <laughs> single wide, uh, had heat in the uh, winter, and I don't think it ever got hot enough for us to require air conditioning. But uh, yeah, it was, it was, yeah, because we we're up in the mountains, I guess, so it wasn't that bad. But anyway, uh, yeah, 11 years old, my dad's in Germany trying to get housing for us, trying to get orders for us to come over because everything moves with orders. You don't just go do what you want. Um, <laughs> always cracks me up in the movies when you know it it makes it look like we can just grab whatever m16 we want or lv <laughs> that we want or tank it's like no there's a lot of paperwork involved somebody has to sign off on it and uh, and then you got to prove every every mile you drive that that is your vehicle for the day uh that kind of thing but anyway um yeah that's why my mom sat my brother and i down in the morning and and told us that she was staying in the u.s to earn her ged so all this time, she still hadn't been able to pass the GED exam. Mm -hmm. So her story, her cover story was that she was going to stay in the U.S. and finally get that done once and for all. Because, you know, we're kids. How are we supposed to know that she could have done that over in Germany mm -hmm. at an army post? You know, we didn't know any better. Like, yeah, I knew later on. I'm like, oh, that could have been done anywhere, anytime. Oh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but that was her story. My brother started crying. Uh, I started thinking, I'm liberated. I don't have to study every single day. You know, when I I get to eat hamburgers. <laughs> yes, in the open. You know, not hide it from my mom. Um, if I want to go oh, play with my so, son. That's so funny. Your brother's crying. You're like hamburgers. Oh, wonderful yes. stuff. <laughs> eat dinner in front of the TV like normal American families. Uh, go While out you're in Germany. Friends. <laughs> yes. Every, and beyond that, too. It was just like, yes. Um, but I think what I realized later on was my brother knew that something else was going on because yeah. uh, one, so what wound up happening was my mom uh, wound up having an affair uh, with another uh, soldier in the army. He was an Apache helicopter pilot. 
the movie Top Gun had just come out and he and his group of friends were basically doing the bet, the on the premises bet from the movie, except it wasn't bounded just on the premises. Theirs was more, can you get that married woman to go out with you while we're on temporary duty here? And they had all put in one paycheck for the bet. So we got paid twice a month. They put one of those paychecks up on the line, uh, wow. like four or five of them. And they all had their shot trying to get my mom to go out with them. And eventually one guy succeeded and my mom decided that's it. I'm going to give it all up and go with this man. He had no intention of having a long-term relationship. His idea was have a fling, break up this marriage. I win the bet. I move on to my next temporary duty assignment. And I fall over. Yeah. <laughs> Horrible guy. I mean, Let's it was just destroy someone's life. Oh my yeah. goodness, that's terrible. Yeah, and uh, and so my dad, you know, a month later, if not sooner, he comes back from Germany. He's got the orders amended. He can bring his family with him. But now he's got this added variable of, but my mom wants to stay and have this other relationship, and she wants a divorce, which is a whole different story than what my mom was telling me, which is I'm going to stay here for a couple of years, get my GED, and they'll meet up with you some other time. The reality was, no, she's filing for divorce. My dad is alone in Germany trying to put up with this and, and not just put up with it, but like save his relationship, save his family. And he, he just was woefully unequipped for that. Um, so we wound up having to pack up. We go to New Jersey for a little bit to stay at my uncle's house and my aunt. And my aunt, this is my mom's oldest sister from Thailand. So um, she was the matchmaker, by the way. She's the one that said, oh, Bruce, you need somebody to take care of you. I know a nice Asian woman to do that. Introduces her uh, him to her younger sister, the middle sister. Um, and then that's eventually when they get married and so on. Um, so yeah, my dad drops us off. He goes back to California for about a week, tries to save everything. He's not successful. Comes back, gets us. We wind up having to go to Germany. And again, I'm still thinking like, this is even better. Like, this is like guy's pad, bachelor pad, you know. Um, and I'm envisioning hamburgers and hot dogs every night in front of the TV doing what guys do. Like, oh, you know, I'm 11. What do I know? <laughs> this is my vision of what guys do. Um, and that first night, though, you know, like we get picked up from the airport from my dad's boss. Uh, we have dinner there. Uh, he takes us to our apartment and we, we start getting settled a little bit. Um, but the next day, you know, we, we go, we get our groceries from the commissary. So American foods, uh, and we're back at the apartment. It's dinner time. We're making sandwiches. And while we're doing that, I'm, I'm talking, you know, talking about like the friends I've met at school that, you know, those kinds of things or, you know, how excited I am to go to school. Uh, I don't think I had a first day yet. And then I hear my brother just crying and, and I, and I think he even yells like, dad, stop, you know, please stop. And I turn around, my brother's got tears coming down his face. And I look over at my dad, my dad's holding a butcher's knife to his chest, his own chest. And he's crying. And you could just see his hand struggling. Like there, there's the temptation to push that knife in. And then there's that, you know, that, that drive to not push the knife in. Like he is physically struggling with that knife as, as he's crying over that knife. And I was like, dad, what are you doing? Put the knife down. And he just mutters something. And my brother and I, we don't wrestle the knife from him, but we do reach out. We get the knife out of his hands. We put that sucker down away from him out of his reach. We give him a big hug. He's crying. Turns out, um, you know, it's all just really hit him now. Like it's just us. It's just the guys. 
there is no Mrs. Dugan to be a part of this family anymore. She wow. has chosen this other life. And, um, and that starts my brother's uh, career, my career as suicide preventionists. You know, that, mm. that, that's not what we do professionally, but you know, <laughs> here we are at nine and 11 years old trying to figure out, you know, dad just tried to kill himself with a knife and he, he doesn't know what to do. He, he, he's worried he might do this again. Turns out he's been seeing a psychiatrist for help and he's even on antidepressants. And so we're like, oh, this, this is a big struggle. And at the same time, we knew like we couldn't say it openly. We couldn't tell my mom because then my mom would, you know, our theory was our mom would then file for custody and get us out of there. And we were the ones keeping my dad alive. Like if my mom's not around to keep him alive, you know, if, if we're the last of what he's got and he doesn't have us, he's going to, he's going to go through it. That's a lot of pressure on little kids. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, we didn't know any better and we didn't know about how to get help for him and, and that kind of thing. We just knew mom cannot know about this secret. And we also got to keep dad alive and this, this will pass, but we just got to get him to that point. So everything that was a sharp object, a knife, fork, pokey stick, you know, if it could puncture your body in any way, we put it in this like plastic blue bucket and we had packaging tape left over from when we got our stuff. And we, we just wrapped that thing in, in tape and my brother hid it somewhere in the basement. I, I just know it was in the basement because he had me go down there that basement was creepy. It was the apartment <laughs> building's basement. And we don't know, I don't know where my brother hid that bucket, but he hid that bucket so well that um, we had to use plastic utensils <laughs> the rest of the time we were there. And uh, my dad was worried because I think the the knives that we had hidden weren't ours. They were the armies. They were like, they were with the apartment. And we're just like, well, sorry, dad. It looks like you're going to have to pay to replace those uh, when it's time to leave. Uh, but yeah, we, we only use plastic utensils from then on um, and, you know, ladles and spatulas and that's it. Wow. Like there were, there were no sharp objects allowed. Uh, then we caught him trying to overdose on his antidepressants. Now, I don't know what that would have done to him, but we just know that he wasn't supposed to take more than what the bottle said. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then we, we took his medicine from him. We're like, dad, you cannot take any type of pill or tablet unless we give it to you. And uh, he's like, well, I have to take this at work also. And I said, well, we'll put your, your dose one or two in your lunchbox. <laughs> yes. In a little plastic sandwich bag and you can mm-hmm. take it then. Um, and then there was a kind of a roller coaster, excuse me, where my dad would write a letter to my mom. They were still writing each other. I was still writing my mom trying to keep mm-hmm. that channel open. And it, it looks like my mom would say some things to my dad that he would pick up as hopeful. Like there is hope for this marriage. We can work things out. Um, and then the next letter would be very clear. No, we are not together anymore. I am divorcing you. And, and it put him on this emotional roller coaster because wow. I think on the one hand, her attempts to be friendly and cordial, he was misinterpreting as let's let's rebuild our marriage Yeah, and when she would have to set her boundary again, say, no, 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 I am divorcing you. That would just rip him apart again. And so he was mm. putting himself through this emotional roller coaster. Um, and yeah, he, he would even attempt to try to not drive the car off the road. I, I remember there was one time he had read a letter. It was my mom laying down the boundary again. We hadn't driven home yet. So we had to go through the rain in Germany on the Autobahn. And he was like, just 
crying and saying, you know, and driving fast. And he's like, guys, I hope you forgive me. And we're like, why? Because I'm gonna have to kill myself. And we're like, dad, can you slow down? And, and he did slow down. So it was just sort of like, we always had to remind him, whatever we're you're here. <laughs> yeah, like we are here physically with you. Like you have a responsibility here um, without just coldly saying snap out of it. You know, we mm-hmm. need you. We, we always reminded him like, hey, you still have two kids and we need you. And um, so we had a bunch of rules in place. Like we always had to have at least my brother or myself present with him when he was at home. If he wanted to go for groceries, we went with. If he wanted to go grab a snack, we went with him. Um, the only time we weren't with him was when he went to work. But we let him know that, you know, we're still at the tail end of school. So until summer hit, we knew how long it took him to get to work. And so we told him we would call you at a very specific time and you need to be in your office to answer this phone because if you're not, we also have your boss's phone number and we'll call him in a heartbeat and let him know that we're worried about you. Can, can he check on you? Um, and then we also knew that after that phone call, how long it would take us to hightail it to school and get in class in time. So we, we had that system worked out and, um, and we, that's were- intense. Yeah, that's yeah. really intense. And then in there, you you ended up in foster care. How did that yes. happen? And where in the timeline is that? Because then you have, you know, when he really attempted suicide, and you you like saved him from it. How? Where's that factor into? So, the- about a month into summer, um, and we thought we had a good groove going. It was my turn to to be at home with my dad, and we're watching TV together. We just had lunch. And my dad says, "Hey, I'm gonna go take a nap. I'm I'm feeling tired." I said, "Okay, cool." So he went to his room, but I, I didn't hear my dad snoring. He, you know, he was a snorer and mm. I realized my dad's not snoring. And I turned around and the door to the hallway is closed. And one of our rules was dad cannot have closed doors ever. Um, but that door was closed. So I'm annoyed. I, I get up, I open the door and I look down the hallway and to the right at the end of the hallway where his room was, that door was closed. I'm like, Oh, that's not good. And I remember creeping up to the door because I was afraid of what I would see on the other side. And when I opened the door, uh, my dad is hanging off the, the handles of his, his closet door, the top closet section. So like you have the main closet and then there's like some space above that. And he's hanging off that door off the handles. And, and I just, I rush up there and he'd use the stool to get up. And then the stool was off to the side. And, um, like all these details are hitting me. Like that's where the stool went. We'd been asking about this for like a day or two. And he said he hadn't seen it. Liar. Mm. It's right here in his room. And I'm thinking, where did he get the rope? We, we hit all those too. They're in the bucket. Um, or they're, they're in the trash. Like there are no ropes in this house, no strings. Where did he get this? And it turned out later on, it was the lanyard from his uniform, uh, because he's a military policeman, this is the lanyard that would secure his pistol to his shoulder so that you couldn't just drop your weapon and forget it or somebody take it from you. So it was a piece of his uniform he had modified to hang himself. And um, I remember pulling the stool up next to him, trying to loosen the rope so his head can you know, flop out of the noose. Uh, but that wasn't budging at all because his weight was locking everything in place. And just out of desperation, you know, 11-year-old me, you know, weighing probably 85 pounds grabs a hold of him and tries to pick him up and he's not budging. And it just, it hits me that I have no strength to lift my dad in any way, shape or form. Um, 
there's nothing I can do. And I just remember screaming out, please, God, no. And I'm crying and there's nothing I could do to, to undo this. And, um, and I'm hearing like his breath, like seep out, you know, of, of his, his mouth and I'm, I'm crying even more. And then the rope snaps and he falls to the floor. There's a loud, um, grunt and, and he, he's just laying on the floor limp and, uh, you know, his face is purple and I'm, I'm just look horrified. Yeah. And, <laughs> uh, and the, the first instinct I had was run out of the room screaming. Um, I didn't go out the front door because the doors locked were locked on the outside and I didn't have time to go grab the keys. So I went out the balcony. We we're on the first floor of an apartment building. So I went out the balcony, hopped off the balcony and just, started screaming for my brother in this little neighborhood we were in because he was out playing with our friends somewhere. And mm -hmm. I just, I needed somebody with a level head to go and see the situation and, and to let him know, like we're, we're in trouble. Like dad's dead. And I'm screaming, I'm screaming. My brother hears me and he comes running. Um, so he heard me before I ever saw him and he comes running up to me and he's like, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I just scream out and, and sobbing I'm like dad's dead. And he's like, where is he? I'm like in his room. And my brother sprints um, and he hops up on the balcony in the room. And and, and our friends, the, the folks that my brother was playing with, they want to hear the like the scoop. Like, what's going on? What do you mean your dad's dead? Like, they, they didn't care. Like they're they're fifth graders. They just wanted the what's going on? What's going on? Yeah. What's going on? Like, stand by me. You want to see a dead body like that was them. And when I look back, it's like. I was, I was mad at them for the longest time for that. Like, you know, I needed friends and y'all wanted to see a dead body and, you know, looking back, they were just being human. Um, mm -hmm. So I get back to the apartment um, and I Did get you guys back call 911 or anything. <laughs> no, no. Um, and cause that was part of the whole deal was like, we, we were keeping this all a secret, but here we are, we failed at that. Like we, we didn't succeed on our part and, and, you know, and our idea to keep our dad alive. Yeah, uh, but he didn't die. So what? Yeah. What happened? You didn't call nine one one. How did he not die and get something, some help? Yeah, it, the the best way we can describe it today is a miracle, um, or he just passed out and the rope happened to snap. Uh, what snapped was the way he had put the lanyard around. It was this tiny metal clip that was holding everything in place, and it looks like that clip gave away before it was. A done deal um but you know fast forward another so this was in 1987 ish he retired like five or six years later from the army and part of that retirement processing he had to go through a medical physical so well, that I went, wait, wait wait back up we got this guy dead on the floor so to speak yes and then all of a sudden we're five years wait did he just wake up he was awake yeah my brother got he in just, there and he my just dad woke was up and Coming you guys just him. went on like life was normal after that. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> we, we thought we could. <laughs> wow. Um, I just, I just so, got to pause here for a minute because yeah. that, that is so. So my brother got in there. Wow. So my brother shares with me, like my dad was coming too. He was waking up when my brother got in there. And uh, by the time I got back to that room, my brother had like a, a cup of water and he was having my dad sip water. And, um, and my dad was like, he was relieved. His voice was relieved. Like, okay, I am still here. Um, instant regret the moment he passed out and the moment he started the whole process and kicked the stool out. He, he shared with us, he totally regretted that the moment that 
stool left his feet and he was crying, but now it wasn't a crying of, I want my wife back. I need her back. The crying was apologetic. I am so sorry. I did this to you. I am never doing this to you again. And, and we believe that we're like, wow, this is the tone here. Isn't just to get us out of the moment. Like, yeah, this truly woke him up. Um, and he, he realized he did not want to die. That was not what he wanted. He knew that was not the answer, but it was instant regret when he committed to it. And he's just grateful that the lanyard snapped. And I'm like, yeah, apparently me too. Uh, yeah. But then still the foster care, where's the foster care yes. fitting here? So, so here we are trying to keep the secret, except my dad's got this line from the lanyard from one side of his neck to the other. And in the army, you don't just get to throw on a scarf when you feel like it. You know, it's not mm. like Nash where you get to wear whatever you want. There are certain regulations in exactly how you wear your uniform. This is on a Sunday afternoon. My dad's got to go to work Monday morning, go do PT, physical fitness training, all that stuff. So he's got to show up in his PT uniform during the summer. So we're talking t-shirt shorts. There's nothing else hiding that neck. Now, their, their physical fitness apparently happened during the morning, so he was able to kind of dip his chin up enough that they didn't see it. But sunrise came. They had a change in their regular work uniforms. My dad thought he could just slip into his office. And his boss, the same guy that picked us up that first night in Germany, um, he stopped my, by my dad's office. He's like, hey, how are you doing, Sergeant? Doing, what, what's going on today in your, your world? And my dad looked up. And immediately try to dip his neck down. And as soon as he did that little motion, apparently staff or Sergeant First Class Moss was like, hey, Sergeant Dugan, what's going on with your neck? And so he dug deeper, found out my, you know, my dad wouldn't fess up to anything. He was like, oh, no, I just cut myself shaving. He's like, baloney. Come on, we're military policemen. We can investigate wounds like this. We see this kind of thing. Uh, are you okay? Are you trying to hurt yourself? Yeah, and that kind of thing. And my dad wouldn't answer. He's like, well, I know how to get the answers here picked up the phone. So this is the U S army. So this isn't like, you know, you violated my rights as a parent or you talked to my kids without my permission. Um, soldiers belong to the U S government until their enlistment's over mm -hmm. uh, in a sense. So Sergeant first class Moss picked up the phone. He called us and we thought it was our dad calling because, you know, we knew he was getting in the office. We were about to call him in fact, but the phone's ringing and I'm like, ah, oh, man. So my brother picks up, he's like, hello. And he hears, I hear the voice to the, the, the headset my brother's like oh shoot hands the phone off to me and i'm like who is this he goes it's our boss and i'm like oh shoot uh, and i'm like hey how's it going we're not well i was allowed to be at home alone because i was of age um my brother was not because i wasn't 14 years old so i couldn't technically babysit my brother we had to have somebody 14 or older be you know babysitting my brother so now we're like oh crap we're gonna be in trouble because of babysitting issues <laughs> and, um but that wasn't why Sergeant Moss was calling. So the first thing out of Sergeant Moss's mouth is, um, hey, I just want to see you guys are doing okay. And I know it's summertime. Um, you know, don't worry about being home alone. I mean, we've all done that. But uh, I'm worried about your dad. Is your dad okay? And we're like, I was like, yeah. I mean, he went off to work this morning and we had breakfast together and all that stuff. And he said, well, how did he get that red mark on his neck? I was like, well, he got hurt. And he goes, okay. Is And nobody's in trouble, and we're not going to send you off to your mom or anything like that, but I just want to know, because I want to help your dad get the help he needs. Is your dad trying to hurt himself? Is, and more specifically, is he trying to kill himself? And we want to help him not do that. 
and we want to help you get reunited with your dad. So you can tell me, you know, what's going on in a very gentle voice. And Mm -hmm. as soon as he got to that gentleness, I broke down and cried. And I said, yes, my dad tried to hang himself yesterday and I couldn't do anything to stop it. And I'm only lucky that we're all lucky that the rope just snapped. And if that rope didn't snap, we'd probably have a different conversation right now. And Sergeant Moss immediately went into action mode. He said, great, Jerry, um, don't freak out, but I need you and your brother to pack a bag for about three to four weeks worth of clothes. So pack your things. We're going to have you stay at a friend's house. They're going to take care of you. We're going to make sure your dad gets the help he needs. You're not leaving the country. You'll still be able to access your dad when you need to. But we're coming by. Your dad and I and one other soldier, we're coming by to help pick you up and put you in a home where you'll be safe. Will you be home when we get there in 15 minutes? And I was like, yes, we'll be here. Mm. And and I just said thank you to him. I think I said thank you to him. And I felt so relieved. Mm. Like, we never ratted my dad out. We never told my mom and we're getting the help we need finally. Wow. And we hung up the phone. I told my brother, Hey, we got to pack. He's and he's scared because he's nine. He's yeah. I keep forgetting. He's younger than I am as we're going through this. And I'm expecting him to kind of be the older kid, like help me and, you know, be the brave one here. Cause I'm scared as hell. And my brother's like, you know, he didn't have the wherewithal to tell me he's even more scared. He's nine. And, you know, a lot of the solutions we came up with were his creativity and his thinking on his feet. And uh, so, yeah, we packed up uh, Sergeant Moss, my dad, and some strange guy we never met before all come through the door. Very nice guys, big smiles on their face. And Sergeant Moss explains to us that uh, my dad's going to go away for a few weeks and get some much needed help because he's not healthy emotionally. And some doctors are going to help him get there and and process this time that he's going through. Uh, you're definitely not going to your mom's because by the time any of this legal stuff goes through, and besides, the home that she's in right now is not a healthy one because she was apparently living with the guy that she left us with. And, uh, and so right away, they already knew this is not going to be a healthy environment either because we're going to go into the home of the guy that split us up. Like it's not going to, it's not going to be a good, healthy environment for the kids. Uh, And so the army was on, on our side for that too. Like, so that's where the foster family came in. We got physicals. We had to reel out things like we didn't have lice. We didn't have scabies, whatever. (laughs) We're uh, up to date. All the things. All the things. And uh, a poor doctor got kicked in the groin by my brother because he's like, you're going to put me there. Boom. <laughs> I was like, ooh, <laughs> why, why did he get to go second? I mean, I could have like avoided the whole uh, turn your head and cough thing. Um, but, you know, that was our first time getting that type of physical too. But we had a chaperone the whole time. Uh, my dad was with us for as long as he could be there. And um, right before the foster family came, that's when they sent my dad off to his own treatment. Mm-hmm. We met the O'Neills. Very nice couple. Um, the wife... Uh, was a German national, born and raised in Germany. The husband uh, was retired from the Air Force, loved it so much in Germany that he married the woman of his dreams from Germany and worked whatever job he needed to work after he left the Air Force to stay in country so that she could be close to her family. Um, turns out they they had two kids, slightly older. So their youngest was about my age. Their oldest was a couple years older than me. So 
we got to see their healthy dynamic in life. Like they, they ate dinner together, but not in front of the TV. They ate at the, the dinner table. They showed gratitude towards each other. Uh, whenever they had a disagreement, they talked those out. My brother and I would just fight. Like whoever wins this fight and comes out with the least number of scratches and bruises wins the argument. And, mm-hmm. and nobody ever won these arguments. We always got in trouble by the time. <laughs> yeah, you had mentioned you had um, like bullying issues and stuff with other family members also yeah. growing up. Yeah. So, that so this, this family was a big different type of environment than the family you were accustomed to. Yes. And so we got to get a taste of the O'Neill family first. Um, so yeah, the, the prayer at mealtime, eating dinners together, going on vacation together. Uh, we actually got to go on a road trip with them for two weeks as they oh, visited wow. uh, the, the wife's uh, family. Like It was like, there's a festival in Uncle So-and-So's town. We're going there. We're going to spend a few days there. We're going to Grandma's house. We're going to like eat in her cellar where she ferments her own wine and has like bottled you know juices and all that stuff i was like to live in a to stay a few nights in a german home that was hundreds of years old was so cool like never would have gotten that experience anywhere else and it it was just neat and then there was a time where we were just kind of panicking like are we ever going to see my dad again they took us on a road trip to go to the hospital where my dad was staying and we got to visit you know, it was a, it was a supervised visit, you know, rightly so, because my dad's on suicide watch. Um, but we got to spend you know, a good hour with my dad, you know, did coloring books, um, played at a playground. And then uh, he had a conversation with the foster parents and they reassured him that we were doing fine. And um, yeah, they, we went back on the road, went back to the O'Neill's home. And yeah, so your childhood with the unhealthy family and your dad going through that, the divorce and the, the horrific trauma exposure of him killing himself and living, hallelujah. Yeah. Would you say that being with the O'Neill family and their healthy way of functioning, and it sounds a whole lot like they had a lot of love in there also, would you say that that helped you and your brother to heal even while you were younger to process what you had just been through? Yeah, I, I would say it definitely helped me heal. Uh, my brother has struggled for a long time. A lot of kids who go through this type of event, um, the majority of them don't come out mm-hmm. with a healthy life. They, they resort to drugs, alcohol, uh, have a hard time in relationships themselves. And mm-hmm. you know that sadly has been my brother's struggle mm-hmm. since then. And uh, you know, we, we get reunited with my dad by the end of summer, uh, sort of. Actually, he's got to get transferred to um, the U.S., so a little bit longer-term care. He can't stay in Germany anymore. He's got to go back to the U.S., mm-hmm. and, uh, and we get to go with, except we can't stay in the hospital with my dad at Walter Reed, uh, so we stay with my Uncle Bill, my Aunt JJ, so my mom's oldest sister, and there's a light, a slight little concern here, like, is aunt JJ going to force us to stay with my mom? Mm. And so I was a little concerned. I, I brought that up to my dad and and we all talked and the promise was, no, we are here for the two of you, uh, Jerry and Jimmy, uh, your dad needs help. And we don't agree with what your mom's doing right now. She's, she's making some choices that are not healthy for anybody, mm-hmm. uh, even herself. And no, we're, we're going to honor our promise to your dad and that's to take care of you. Uh, and and not submit you to what's going on over there. 
And we're like, oh, wow, cool. Uh, so my Uncle Bill, by the way, also a military policeman. He was my dad's, my dad's boss, like, way back in Thailand. Uh, so this guy already knew. He, he didn't like the other soldier, the one that was my mom's boyfriend. He's like, mm. if I see that guy, I'll be arrested. Like, that was his attitude towards wow. this whole thing anyway. How long uh, did like, you stay with them before you were reunited with your dad? Because then you have all that happened to you in your adulthood that we wanted to talk about, too. Yeah. And you just... We really dug deep <laughs> about the this story, here. which I yeah. think is very helpful for people to know what you guys have gone through. But yeah. how, how did you get reunited with him? And then Not how did months. you become an adult after all yeah. of that? Uh, so we were with the foster family in Germany for about a month and then with my aunt and uncle for about two months. So about three months altogether away from my dad with some intermittent connections, phone calls, that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, he finally gets this clean bill of health. Uh, he could still continue on with his army career, still have custody of my brother and I with certain conditions. And we met all those conditions. We get restationed to California, to Fort Ord, California. And the reason for that is because my dad's family is in California. Mm-hmm. And, and it was decided that he needed to have that type of family support to lean on because he he needs to realize he's not alone. He has people, he has family, yeah. he has people who love him. And he has it's to be It's really kind of amazing to me that the military saw that and honored that. Maybe yeah. because of the severity of his difficulties. Because I have military people in our family. I don't think they've ever taken things like that into consideration. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like you need to go here and you need to go there and you know, move here, move here, and you know, we don't really care. Yes. But I have gotten the impression from so it's so fortunate that they considered this and let him be by his family because love does mitigate trauma i mean that studies have shown that so then he's by his family and so did you just stay in in california for the rest of your time until you were an adult yep that's exactly what happened and you know every weekend we're going to my grandparents house and you would think everything's fine like dad is healed we're reunited with family we're in california again uh, except the setting for the rest of the Dugan family was that there were two other uncles going through divorce as well. Mm-hmm. And the Dugans as a whole live in poverty. You know, it's, mm. I think the exceptions were like my aunt Virginia, who not only got a good career, she also married a guy who also had a good career. So as a family, they were a good nuclear family and they stayed as far away as they could. Uh, and then my aunt Patty, um, she lived down in the San Diego area. So we hardly saw her, but everybody else pretty much lived in poverty and you have these two additional uncles going through divorce and it was truly a hurt people, hurt people kind of environment. Mm. Uh, or there were kind of two environments. There was the one that was healing and replenishing for my dad. He's reconnecting with his parents. He's hanging out with his siblings. He's, you know, doing work on the weekends to keep him busy, those kinds of things. So these were good things for my dad. What I was exposed to and my brother was that you have these cousins who are kind of being left Lord of the flies, like, Mm. Yeah, having to raise themselves. And then you have of the two uncles that are also going through divorce, one of them really became a bully in the family. He had to he had to exert dominance. He did not get the help that my dad got. Mm. And so he was just the the you wouldn't know the guy was in his thirties at the time because he was always hanging out with the cousins, the, the kids, always bullying them. Um he would say phrases like the word to the wise is sufficient. And it was like his grumpy get out of here statement. Mm. Um He'd make fun of folks. He'd make fun of us. He, you know, 
but then one of my other cousins was you know really into wrestling and he just saw this little jerry guy and thought oh i could do top rope you know wrestling moves on this kid and he can't put up a fight so we had that big kid always wrestling and hurting me and and then his his friend from across the street would get in on the action he was even bigger than that cousin and so i had two fat kids always fighting me every weekend and i had this uncle kind of pouring on and um i get called wonderful names like gook and half breed and chink and nip and mm. all the wrong slurs I, I would always and then of course i made it worse because i would try to course correct i'm like no chink is chinese i'm not chinese and they're like oh well you're a nip then i'm like well that's japanese still racist but i, I see keep trying keep trying you got this uh, and they're keep like trying, you got yeah, this that's hilarious like, well you're just a boat person then i'm like no they're vietnamese you're getting closer you're getting warmer <laughs> they're they're next door to thailand or they're next door to cambodia and and you know you gotta look at a map guys come on you got this um and so that would just make the fights worse uh, but it was like me latching back though it's like you guys are being totally racist here and you think it's okay because you're feeling pain and and i'm, you know, I'm like 12 and 13 at the time and yeah. um and it kind of culminates with like, I'm just tired of it. And my uncle is doing his little spiel of the word to the wise is sufficient. And I just pop off and I'm like, you know, you always say that, but you never actually have a word to the wise. You just say the phrase without any wisdom. Words. Yeah. Where's the wisdom in this? Are you really just empty? Like, do you realize what you're saying is an empty statement? He's like, oh, you're Mr. Smarty Pants, huh? Mr. College Bound Kid. You think you're smarter. And then it ends with him trying to choke me out. Mm. And I'm just kicking and clawing at this guy. And, you know, my grandpa takes his side. You know, like, Jerry, you need to learn to respect your elders. And, you know, you're under my roof. You live by my rules. I'm like, this is your rule? Like, you let grown men pick on kids and beat them up and choke them out? You got to be a better man than that. And I remember storming off and slamming a door because, I mean, there was like, go go into our room and be alone and so i slam the door and uh my grandpa kind of gets mad at me for slamming his door and i have to show respect i'm like when you have your grown man son out there show respect to people including you then you'll show me you deserve respect and he's like you need to learn your place and you know you're lucky that you're your dad's son and not somebody else's because i would whoop you myself and he closes the door and i'm like i'm out of here i have nowhere to go because we're like 100 50, 160 miles away from home. So I can't just walk. Um, I could, I, I just wind up as a headline somewhere. Uh, but I was a sneaky kid and I, I wound up sneaking into the garage, got into a pile of like clothes that had been there for months. And I just hid under this pile of clothes in my grandparents' garage for hours and didn't tell anybody I was there. And my dad was off on an errand. He had no idea any of this stuff was going on. They sent him off on an errand. That's when my uncle showed his true colors. That's when my cousins were getting in on it. And my brother was just sort of like the safest thing is to let Jerry kind of fight this fight on his, on his own. Because uh, he's kind of egging them on. He's like insulting them back. And so my brother, he wasn't in a position. He was younger than me, smaller than me. There wasn't a whole lot he could do anyway. And so here I am hiding in the garage. I could hear them as they're freaking out. Like, where's Jerry? We got to find Jerry. Oh, he probably ran off. Oh, he's probably under the bed in the other room. And so I could hear them as they're searching the house and they can't find me. I'm like, these guys are so dumb. Like I walked right by half of them to go into the garage <laughs> and, and went right underneath the pile of clothes. In fact, they came into the garage a number of times and I just stayed quiet and let them search and uh, heard them talk trash. Uh, you know, like 
one of my cousins was just like, yeah, it's, he's such a bitch. You know, sorry, I couldn't say that. <laughs> you might have to edit that. Uh, but that, that was, that was still their attitude towards me. Like, here's this mm-hmm. little kid just being, you know, temper tantrum me. Um, but then I got to hear my dad come home and he's like, Hey, and he hugs my brother and he's saying hi to everybody. He brought all the things back that he'd been sent out to get. But then he's like, where's Jerry? I, I got something for him too. And then you could just hear the awkwardness. It, it was silent, but it was awkward. And um, my brother finally says, Jerry, we haven't been able to find him. He's he's not here. And my dad's like, why is he not here? And you hear them trying to navigate through a story like, oh, well, he was just being disrespectful to everybody. And I told, you know, grandpa's like, I told him to cool off. So he's just out there cooling off somewhere. And my dad's like, well, why did he pop off? Like, what made him mad? And so my dad, I hear a click. And I think it's him going into military police investigative mode. Mm. And I'd never heard him do this before. And he's asking questions, very pointed. I'm asking a specific question, and you can only give me a specific answer that'll tell me either the truth or it'll tell me you're lying and trying to cover up the truth. And wow. they're just unloading. And I'm like, wow, my dad, this is my dad. This, he's back. He is back. <laughs> and I want to be out there eating popcorn and watching this unfold, but I got to be here just a little longer. And, and I get to hear him lay down the law with them. He goes, that is my son. And he had been telling me you've been picking on him for months. And I didn't want to believe it, but now I know it's true. And he is me. And if you're going to pick on him, you're picking on me. And I'll tell you this. If you can't love him as part of me, then he doesn't have to be here. I don't have to be here. And my grandpa's like, well, you owe me work for all the money I've given you. He's like, well, I'll work that off. But my son doesn't have to come here anymore. But you better hope I find my son. All of you. And he looked like at my uncle. He's like, you especially better hope I find my son. And uh, my dad comes into the garage. He doesn't know I'm in there. And mm-hmm. I, I hear him kind of weep. He's, he's, he's like mad weeping. And I come out I'm like, dad, he goes, Oh my God. And I'm like, I've been here the whole time. Don't tell them that. And, uh, he goes, are you ready to get out of here? I said, yes, pack your bags. You never have to come here again. And I was, yeah, about 12, 13 at the time. Wow. And I mean, I wound up going back a number of times for like Christmas, Easter, mm-hmm. uh, but, but you didn't have to live and endure that like that. Again exactly. I didn't go there every single weekend. Like before I got to stay at home in, in Marina, California, um, but and so remember- all this upheaval and turmoil and picking on and trauma that you've gone through, did that play a role in why you enlisted in the army? Um, that was a slightly different reason only because <laughs> I'll get there. So in the end, what ended up happening is by 14, I realized I got to live life a different way. Like if I follow my family's patterns, I will be living in poverty, hating my parents hating my grandparents, hating myself and having kids who hate me as well. And I realized that's a lot of hate. It's a lot of hate. And I was, I was already tired of hating. I was like, I'm, I'm 14. I I don't have time for this. I, and I, and for me, suicide was not an option. Having seen my dad attempt it Mm -hmm. like that is not on the table for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Living a miserable life also is not on the table for me. So what else is there? And then that's where I started thinking about families like, the O'Neill the Yes. That I wanted a family like that where the kids loved their parents. They were engaged. I was even thinking about my friends at school. Like they loved going on vacation with their families. I dreaded it because mm-hmm. of what I was going to. And I was like, I want to, I want to have kids that love going on vacation. 
I want to be the kind of parent my kids want to go on vacation with. Uh, but to be there, I've got to be the kind of man that my wife wants to be around me too. And I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I'm 14. <laughs> so, um, like, yeah. A little early to know that. <laughs> exactly. But I knew what I wanted. And so at 14, I, uh, it's getting close to Christmas. I was earning money by watering a guy's yard and cutting his grass when he went on vacation with his wife. He was a retiree. And I took that money. I bought a bunch of Christmas cards from the dollar store and I wrote my vision on every single one of them. Mm. You know, Dear Aunt Virginia and Uncle Bullum, um, I want to be the first in my family to go and graduate from college, to live on my own, to travel the world, not live in poverty, and and break this cycle of um, brokenness in our family. And I, I want our name to be one that we can be proud of. And you're welcome to be a part of this journey with me. And, and, and I did that for everybody. My cousin Susan, my cousin Jeremy, my you know the, the uncle who bullied wow. me, the cousins who would bully me, my brother, my dad, my grandparents, uh, and it got mixed reviews. You know, the, the family members who thought we should also strive to be better, they loved it, fully supportive. Mm-hmm. My aunt uh, Virginia, my uncle Bulla, my aunt Patty, and Uncle Lou, my cousin Susie, uh, they were the types who were supportive. My dad was supportive. Uh, I learned later on my cousin Susie held onto that Christmas card to turn her life around. So she was facing drug addiction, sexual assault recovery, all these really horrible traumas. And she said it was that card that inspired her to flip her life around. She was like, because I'd read that card and like you're stationed in Germany as a soldier serving our country. You're getting married. You're having your own kids. You're going off to war. And I was like, I got to do something different with my life. And I came across that card again. And it's like, I can go too. And so she became a CNA. It's just, you know, stories like that with my cousins who wanted to break their cycles of poverty and pain, seeing my example, remembering that card and going and doing it themselves. Uh, was just, that was yeah. a card that read hope. Yeah. And those who were looking for hope. Yeah. And, and, it, and I was doing it mostly for myself. Like I wanted to remind myself and, mm-hmm kind of put it out there publicly. So that now there's like this pressure. I've got to go do this stuff because I've been bragging about it to people. Uh, the other half of the family, of course, naturally wanted to keep me down. They're like, who is this guy to think he's going to be the first to go to college? You know, Mr. College Boy wannabe, you know, what's that going to do for him? And I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't have to see you guys all the time. So that's cool. You you stay where you want. I'm going forward. And, um, and so, yeah, high school was nice. Um, college got through it sort of (laughs) I was a pre-med student who uh, didn't realize he didn't want to be a doctor that was my mom's dream you know something she always said that I was going to be you're going to grow up you're going to be a doctor you're going to serve in the army as an officer you're you're going to make something of yourself that was her limited view of what success looked like and so Mm -hmm. she just pouring that into me and when I went to college I was recruited for tuba performance but thought I had to be noble and I went for the pre-med program at that school. I, I was graduating barely with a 2.1 GPA. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, it's one thing to be like the C student in med school. You still graduate and become a doctor. But that's, that's a little scary. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. Right. It's, you know, do you have the doctor that was top of her class or the one that was at the bottom of her class? That, yeah. Well, someone uh, I interviewed on my podcast recently who went through a lot of medical trauma. <laughs> They said, what do you call a doctor that graduates at the top of their class? I'm like, I don't know, a doctor. And what do you call a doctor that graduates at the bottom of their class? A doctor. I'm like, oh, that's awful. 
<laughs> you need to yeah. get the top yeah. of the class when you need the top of the class. Cause yes. Now, fortunately for me, I was doing so poorly. I was never even going to get into med school. No. <laughs> you don't, yeah. you, you don't get doctor. I don't even get to, <laughs> not even get to say I was a doctor student or a medical student. Uh, I was um, like, I got my bachelor's degree in chemistry, biology, and I, I ran with it. I'm like, oh, dad, let's get out of here. Why? I want to get out of here with this in my hand before they realize they made a mistake. Let's go. <laughs> so I have not been on that campus since, and it's been over 20 years. Um, they didn't come after you to get it back. <laughs> no, they didn't. They, they said I, I really did earn it. You know, they're not coming after me. I'm like, I don't believe you guys. It's a trap. And they're like, we could just delete it on our end. It's really is. <laughs> oh, good point. Good point. So, um, so all that, I still thought doctor was the thing in my path. And I looked at my options. I was out of money. So going to nursing school, working as a nurse for a few years and trying again, wasn't uh, an option that route. Uh, going back to school period was not an option because I was truly out of money. I was out of financial aid. I was out of borrowing money. There, was, there were no more resources there for me. And that's when the army came along. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, who has 200 plus years of experience causing traumas and healing them and putting people back into the world somehow. And they'll pay you for that and they'll pay you while you learn it and they'll pay you afterwards to work it. And I was like, okay, so I'll, I'll learn a skill. They'll pay for that. They'll pay me while I learn the skill and I got job placement and I want to travel now. I've been pent up in schools for like my whole life. I want to travel and I have no money for that. Oh, the army will pay me to live overseas. Yes. So I walked into a recruiter's office and they had fun. <laughs> They're like, oh, college kid came in. We're going to get this guy. Uh, so I, I joined as a combat medic, uh, lower enlisted. But because I had a college degree, I was coming in as an E4, a specialist, which is cool for me when I'm getting my paycheck. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize how much the Army expected from people in leadership type of roles and, and hierarchy and structure, things like rank, time and rank, time and service. Um, so coming in as an E4, when you're looking around the room and you see my E4 rank and everybody else around me is in private rank, I'm automatically the guy at the highest level. And so I was always expected to be the guy in charge. And mm. you know, where's everybody? I don't know. What, who are you talking to? Oh, I don't know, Joe Sargent. <laughs> like, you know, it was just like, I was still learning like everybody else. And uh, so I found myself as early as basic training, having to lead my classmates mm. because of the rank I was wearing on my collar. Um, my idea when I go on to be a medic, to learn my medic skills, um, my plan was to lay low, just become a medic, go to my first unit. This will all be over in a few years. <laughs> well, they saw me on day one in my medic course, called me to the back of the room, and they asked me a bunch of questions about my, my education background, where I went to basic training, uh, all that stuff. And I found myself the class sergeant in my medical course. I go to Germany, and I'm expecting there's plenty of E4s at this point, but it was kind of the holidays. So I'm the highest ranking guy there with like zero experience. And I'm like, what is going on? I was always getting in trouble the first year in the army because I kept being like the highest ranking guy of who was left. And mm -hmm. so I learned pretty quickly to be humble, learn from the people around you who actually have experience. Um, did a deployment to Kosovo, came back from Kosovo. There was a new soldier named Morales and she, she didn't have the best leadership when she came into country. So I was paired up with her to teach her everything I learned in Kosovo until she can get a, a new leader who was worth something. 
And I thought, well, she's cute. And she's listening to everything I say. And I would love to ask her out, but apparently she's got a boyfriend. That's what everybody keeps telling me. So um, my only way to spend time with her was to keep teaching her what I learned in Kosovo. Mm. Except I ran out of stuff in like the first week or two. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I'm out of content. And, and it turns out of all the guys who were in Kosovo with me, I was the only one who apparently took my, my job assignment seriously because I was motivated by love, you know, like, uh, so, uh, I, I thought I got to teach her everything I know. And I was just like, Hey, you know, after lunch, I'll teach you about how to do this, this, and this. Oh, Hey, we're going to the motor pool tomorrow. I'll show you everything we would do to do our preventive maintenance and checks on our vehicle. Uh, you know, like there's the textbook way, but then the way I learned in Kosovo, it's like faster, more accurate, and it covers all the stuff that we're required to do by the book. So there we are underneath the Humvee, just looking up at engine stuff. And I'm like, I'm finding parts. I'm like, and look at this here. And she's like, what is that? I don't know. I wonder if that's supposed to be there. Let's look that up. And so like, we're going through the manual together. <laughs> like, So this, this, this woman, this is the woman who is now your wife. Yes. 21. Uh, we're on year number 22 right now. Uh, turns out she was just going to listen to whatever I said. Cause she thought I was cute as well. Um, and it took me three months, by the way, for me to finally ask her out and, and to be my girlfriend and all that stuff. And she was just like, what took you so long? And I'm like, what do you mean? And she's like, I've been dropping hits for like three months that I like you. And I'm like, what? And she's like, seriously, did you seriously think I wanted to know how to set up a field antenna for the radio? <laughs> I was like, but you ate up every word. She was like, I was in the back of a Humvee with you. I had nowhere to go. And I wanted to keep hearing you talk because it was better than what we were doing. I'm like, okay. And then she's like, and on top of that, when are we ever going to have to set up a landing zone using infrared chemical lights and strobe lights? When are we ever going to have to do that? I'm like, you never know. That's a real skill. And she's like, did you, did you use that in Kosovo? No. <laughs> she's like, you know, I know. I'm like, how? She's like, I asked everybody else who went. Did you guys ever have to set up things with like infrared lights? And they all said, no. Why? Well, Jerry's going to teach me that tonight. And they're just like, why did he get infrared chem lights? He can't even get infrared or the night vision goggles. He's got to sign those out and nobody's going to sign those out to him. Um, she's like, oh, okay, cool. So she kind of knew like after the second week, I was pretty much just finding stuff to teach her. Like I was ordering <laughs> manuals from as before the internet. So we couldn't just log on the computer and look up the stuff. I was signing up for correspondence courses just to be able to teach her stuff, like how to change your clothes in a chemical environment. And, <laughs> Uh, you know, stuff that we never did in Kosovo just to keep teaching her skills that I apparently learned in Kosovo. Um, and we still joke about it to this day. Oh. Right down to like where she invited me to her room to eat hot dogs at like one in the morning. And, and I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm full. And she's like, I know, dummy, I was there with you. Like she's thinking this in her head. Uh, and she was just like, I'm looking for an excuse to have this guy hang out with me a little bit longer. And, and it just went over my head. And then I just realized, man, you know how many correspondence courses I went through to keep you talking with me because of my my job to teach you what I learned? She's like, no, I don't. I'm like, apparently I'm a I'm promotable to sergeant now. <laughs> <laughs> I've earned enough points to go to the next rank, but I have to go and do some other stuff first to get the promotable status. And uh, so we wind up dating. 9-11 happens. We get married. Uh, instant family. We have We have a son right away. A uh, year and some change later, we have a daughter on the way, and then I get orders to go to uh, – she gets out of the Army because um, 
the, the plan, the army's plan was to her, for her to split up from her, our kids. And we needed at least one parent in their lives. And, and so she got out so that we can keep that bond with our kids. I stayed in and I wind up getting deployed to uh, Kuwait in early 2003. Uh, I'm supposed to get out of the army that year, get stop lost. And instead on March 19th, I'm on the border between Kuwait and Iraq writing my last letter home. What I think is my last letter home. Uh, and, and I send it, it's not like in the movies where, you know, you write it and you hand it to your buddy and say, if anything happens to me, send this to my family. There were guys who did that, mm-hmm. but I knew if I did that and handed my letter off to somebody as their medic. It was going to freak people out. Mm-hmm. And I, I, part of my job was to help keep morale up. So I wrote my letter home, but I also knew if I wrote a farewell letter home, it would freak my wife out. I was like, okay, so I, I just need this to let my wife know I love her. I was thinking about her I, and I got to think about my son. Who's like a year old right now. He's going to read this when he's 10, 11 years old. I want him to know I loved him and my daughter's not even born yet. And I want her to have a glimpse of who I was through this letter. And so I wrote that letter as if I'm talking to them live, mm-hmm. knowing my kids are not going to read this for at least a decade. So this is my farewell to them. And I, I fold it. I write out the address on the envelope. I write free mail where the stamp goes. And our first sergeant was doing one last mail run. I handed him the letter. That thing was sent off that night. We start the attack on some guard towers with artillery. I was in an artillery unit. Um, and right after that, we drive through a minefield. Uh, it, I mean, it's plowed and we drive, just follow the vehicle in front of you and you'll be fine unless they veer off and blow up then you're not fine. Uh, and then I'm in Iraq. We invade the country. Uh, there's a three day sandstorm that I thought we had died. And that was, that was hell. And I was not expecting to go home in any of this. Uh, we wind up in Baghdad. Um, and eventually, you know, I, I just started to, to realize I can't go home a monster and mm-hmm. it's becoming clear that I'm about to go home, which again, I was, I was so sure I was not going home. I was not going home alive anyway, that not only did I write that letter and send it home on March 19th, I was looking around and realizing people were, you know, they were looking scared. And I thought I've covered all my bases. I've written my letter home. I've, you know, shaken the hands of all the guys that report to me to send them on their merry way. Uh, I've done my rounds to kind of make sure people are still kind of somewhat jovial and I'm, I'm changed into my uniform, my chemical suit and my body armor to go. I think I've covered everything. And for some reason, I felt like just in case, because I wasn't a Christian at the time, I thought just in case, let me cover the spiritual base as well. And I remember saying to myself in the truck, well, not to myself, but saying out loud, I was the only one in my truck. And I, I said, God, if you're real, uh, you better replace me with somebody who will love my wife better than I did and raise my children as if they were his own and raise them to their best potential. And let them be the kids, the, the people they were meant to become. And that's all I got for you. And then I put my helmet on and then I carry on with my mission. Not realizing I had made a prayer and I had made a deal with God uh, <laughs> to replace me with me. Um, and I didn't even understand that until years later. So we, we go to war. Uh, we, we get pulled out of there because it turns out my unit, my brigade, 
uh, was too fine of a razor's edge for peacekeeping. And they're like, all right, mm-hmm. get those guys out of there. <laughs> they're, they're too rough for peacekeeping. Get them out. Uh, and I'm on my way back to the United States. I'm reunited with my wife. And our chaplain had told us before we left uh, the theater, uh, Iraq and Kuwait, when you go home, if you're married, raise your hand. And we raised our hands. All right. How many of you still expect to have all that tax-free money you earned while you're here in country? And we kept our hands up, except the guys who knew better. He saw a few hands come down. He said, all right. So the guys who've been on a deployment before know. But for the rest of you who kept your hands up, oh, that was adorable. But here's the thing. <laughs> all that tax-free money you think you earned is not sitting in a bank waiting for you to spend when you get home. It went to one of two things. Either A, your wife prepared the home by buying new furniture, a new computer, a new gaming console, all those things for you to have a nice new home to come to, to show you that you earn this. We're building a home together. So that's one thing. And if you got new furniture, hug your wife, thank her, enjoy the family, enjoy the time you have with your family. You got a second lease on life. The second option is that money got spent on a boyfriend, a Sancho, a Jody, you know, what, you know, all the nicknames that we had for, for um, extramarital affairs. And he said, now, if that happened to you, don't react out of anger at home. Leave the house right away. You know, excuse yourself, leave the house. Go to the nearest buddy you've got and then come get a hold of me. Here's my phone number. Gave us his phone number. Wow. So um, he's like, yeah, either A, you got new furniture or B, your family got a new boyfriend. And, you know, if it's the second case, give us a call. I was like, oh, man, that's brutal. Yeah. (laughs) I'm looking around thinking, who these guys got a new boyfriend in their families? And, you know, kind of like D-Day, like they they were expecting like eight out of ten of them to not make it. And they're looking around like, oh, these poor guys, (laughs) not realizing they could be one of them. Um, So we get home. We're in Georgia. The the Army band is playing, you know, Proud to be an American and our, our theme song for the division. We get reunited with our families. We're in our cars. We're driving home. And so my mom, my stepdad, and um, and the stepdad is like two guys later. So he's he's phenomenal. He's been in our lives for over two decades now. Grandpa Dave, uh, our kids have known him their whole lives, uh, even before my my mom married him. And so, yeah, my brother, my mom, my stepdad, they're driving one car with I think our son to to the house. I haven't seen this house. Um, and so it's my wife, myself, and our daughter who I had met for the first time in that homecoming ceremony. She's three months old. She's sleeping in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, and my wife's driving because she knows where we're going. I have no clue. And she says, hey, I have to tell you something. Do you promise not to get mad? And I'm like, oh, man, please be furniture. Please be furniture. <laughs> and I guess I was saying it out loud. She's like, what's that? I'm like, oh, um, uh, we, did we get new furniture? She's like, yeah, we did. Um, but that's not what I have to tell you how'd you know about the furniture? I'm like, Oh yeah, I'll tell you later. <laughs> but I'm thinking we didn't get both. Like I thought it was an either or thing. We get furniture or the boyfriend. This doesn't sound fair. Uh, Cause this is just me in my own head going this mm-hmm. route. And she said, and so I'm like, you didn't get a boyfriend. Did you? She goes, no. I'm like, okay, good. So what could it be? Like at that point, it's like, she could tell me anything and it's not going to be bad. We got like furniture and not a boyfriend. So not a boyfriend. what do we got? <laughs> <laughs> I am okay with it. Whatever it is, I'm on board. Um, and so she said, she knew I wasn't very religious, but the entire time I was deployed, especially when the war kicked off and all through the war, um, she'd been praying for me. 
And she knew that I wasn't very religious and she didn't want me to be offended by that. And I was like, that didn't hurt me at all. I, why would I be hurt by you praying over me? That's actually really nice of you. Thank you. And she said, well, that's not the part. I'm like, oh, uh, and she said, I made a deal with God that if he brought you home safely, I would bring my whole family to church. That includes you. And I know you're not religious and I know going to church isn't your thing, but I'm asking you, would you be willing to go to church with me? Because it would help me honor my deal with God. And it would make, it would mean a lot to me. It's like, wow, she made a deal with God. And I, I looked at her and I said, well, I, you know, one of the big things that I value is that we honor our promises. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I'll always honor my, my promise to you to be your husband. I'll always honor my promise to our kids to be their father. And if you made a promise, I'll help you back it. So if you made a promise to God, that we'll be at church. And I guess we're going to church. Do we, <laughs> how soon do we go? She goes, well, as soon as possible, uh, your mom's staying until a couple more days. The weekend is coming up. We can start looking around at that point. I was like, cool. Um, so yeah, we started going to church and I was like, oh man, so, so just furniture. <laughs> She's like, yeah, we just got furniture. Oh, and a computer. I'm like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, so I, I get out of the army in November that year, 2003, we moved to Corpus Christi, Texas. We plug into a church called Bay Area Fellowship. Uh, this is all in the span of 2003. I don't receive Jesus for another year and a half. Uh, so 2005, um, our pastor's doing his closing uh, invitation to salvation. And for the first time in this year and a half that we've been going to this church, he says, hey, and God just put it on my heart right now. We're, we're a mega church for Corpus Christi. So we're talking about like 5,000 people coming in through like six different services. Wow. So I've heard this guy preach. I'm just a pebble of sand in the sea of people. Like he has no idea who I am. Nobody in that church really knows who I am. Just my wife and our, and our kids. And, I remember this pastor saying at the end of the sermon, uh, you know, let's bow our heads. And, you know, Father God, uh, I know this is where we invite people to, to receive your son as their savior. And you've put it on my heart to just say uh, to, to the folks sitting in here, you've been dipping your toe long enough and it's time to take the plunge. You know what you're getting into. And when he said that, I was thinking, there is no way he knows that's going through my head right now. Cause I was just thinking to myself, <laughs> I'm still dipping my toe in this thing. Cause I, what am I really getting into if I receive Jesus as my savior? And it was like, as soon as I thought that, boom, that comes out of our pastor's mouth. I'm like, you're kidding me. <laughs> and, uh, and so I wind up receiving Jesus, right? Then I'm like, yeah. And I just felt it on my heart. Like, what really do you have to lose? You know, if you go for it, it'll change your world. You know, if you give it a chance, if you go for it and it turns out to not be your thing, what's it really going to hurt anyway? I'm like, oh yeah. Yeah. And so I went for it. And and ever since then, it's just been an eye opener, eye opener after eye opener after eye opener. Um, and so then fast forwarding, you know, a couple of years later, cause you had asked earlier, you know, how did all these things just kind of click into place for me? And, you know, it's a couple of years later, I somehow became one of the men's group leaders at my church, uh, after playing paintball with some guys. So it was like paintball t-shirt. I'm now a men's ministry leader. I'm like, what? <laughs> I don't, is that how that works? My wife's like, I grew up Catholic. I don't know. It's, we've <laughs> from all the traditional things here. I'm like, okay, okay. Um, and my pastor's dad was in our group to help us kind of get up and running. And 
for some reason, we start talking about being a new creation in Christ. Like we landed in the book of Romans, renewing your mind every day, being a new creation. And my pastor's dad had said something to the effect of, yeah, a lot of us don't realize that when we're talking about we died to ourselves, like you're not physically dying, but spiritually you've died and you're being born again into something new. And it's from that point on that you're being reshaped, regrown, and, and guided by the Holy Spirit to be this better version of yourself. And I was like, wow, that's really good. That's good. That's good. And, it's, and I'm just listening to the conversation. And all of a sudden, in the back of my head, I hear this voice saying to me, um, you better replace me with a husband who will love my wife better than I did and raise my children as if they were his own. And I was like, oh, my gosh. That yeah, well, I got goosebumps all over because oh, <laughs> I remembered and, that. And I was, I was just like, and I still get choked up thinking about it because it's like, what? Like, I, I said that prayer in 2003, and it's like four years later, like God's telling me, now this is what it meant. I'm going to drop my mic now. Boom. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm not ready for this. And it was just so overwhelming to me, that, that realization that I just started crying my eyes out at this table of like seven or eight guys over breakfast tacos and coffee. And they're seeing this unfold with zero context whatsoever because everything that's going on on the outside is the result of what's going on inside my own head and my heart yeah. and this aha moment. And they're just like, Jerry, you okay? And like, we need to stop and pray for Jerry. And I'm like, no, no keep going. And I was just like, because uh, there was somebody else in the group who was like having an aha moment as well. And so this was like my own little personal moment that just I couldn't contain. And I was like, no, just keep going, keep going. I'll, I'll explain this later if I can pull myself together. Uh, <laughs> but in that particular meeting, I can never pull myself together. I think uh, the pastor's dad, Bill Sr., stayed around a little bit longer. We chatted. I told him the stories. Like, you have to share that next week. And I was like, did you see me now? I was a blubbering idiot for like. I'll give you a week to gather yourself. Yeah, I didn't know that. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be a blabbering idiot next week. And he goes, well, I'll buy your tacos for you if that happens. I'm like, all right, cool. That's a deal. Um and and he was really cool. He was like the grandfather I never had, you know, the the one that was like nurturing and mm -hmm. encouraging and and you know, just guiding you. Um very so how unlikely. long after that did you find out about your dad? You were gonna skip to that early on. And oh, I didn't want you to let that cat out of the bag too early what? about your dad. But he went to the yeah. doctor later and yes. you know, your prayer that you cried out while he was hanging there, and then you found out. Fill in the blank here. Somewhere in between, uh, let's see, my dad got out of the army in 1992. So somewhere between 1992 and that moment where I'm breaking down at that men's ministry, like that men's group meeting, because that was part of the aha moment. Because um, mm -hmm. God didn't just show me like that prayer and this is where you are now. He showed me like everything. He's like, I'm going to go way back to this moment. And, and reminding me of when I was screaming out, yeah. Please God, no. Yeah. 11 Please years God, old. No. Yeah. He went that far back to let me know I was with you then. You didn't join me until 2005, but I was with you way back in 1986, uh, if not further back than that. Uh, and it was just that, that whole thing, this conversation that was happening externally around uh, God has a plan for you to, to help you, you know, thrive. And, you know, the, the scripture that gets quoted that I'm horribly butchering right now. So somewhere between, and it was closer to 1992 because my dad's bragging about this. Uh, it turns out he's getting out of the army. They're putting him through a medical physical, which includes like full body x-ray or something at the mm -hmm. time. And the doctor doing the physical is chatting with him. He's like, seriously, how are you and I talking right now? And my dad's like, 
well, I mean, it took me a while to get the appointment, but I mean, I'm retiring. So that's why we're here. And the doctor says, no, I'll show you in a sec. And he puts the x-rays up on the, the light board. So this is before they digitized x-rays. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so people are like, what? What is he talking about? Yeah, we used to have them on film, guys, and we put them on these light screens, and then you could look through them, just like in the older movies. Um, so, yeah, the, apparently the doctor put the x-ray up, and he points with his little pin on the x-ray. He says, you see this, like, weird bump here and here on your neck? And my dad's like, yeah. He's like, did you ever, like, break your neck? And my dad's like, I guess, yeah. And he explains, like, if you look at my chart, you'll see that I attempted suicide back in the 80s. And, um, you know, he's like, well, how did you do that? Well, I tried to hang myself. He goes, okay. So how are we here again? He goes, well, the rope snapped and then I, I came too. And he goes, but you never saw a doctor to get a physical for this. He goes, no. Um, they were just, everybody was just focused on making sure I didn't succeed the next time. And that there was never a next time. <laughs> and he goes, okay. Mm-hmm. But nobody gave you any, he's like, I'm going through your record and there's no x-ray after this event other than this one. He goes, yeah. All right, see these weird bumps? He goes, yeah, that is scar tissue telling me that you had a broken neck. That's how I know you had a broken neck. Uh, But on top of that, where that broken neck happened should have killed you instantly. We should not be having this conversation right now. And I was like, and when my dad told me that, I was like, you know, however old I was in 1992. So I was like 16 or 17 at the time. And I was like, oh man, that's such a cool story. Wow, you died, died, dad. <laughs> and, uh, so it was just a cool story at the time. Not when really- dad connected the dots, just like yes. you said, he dropped his mic as he connects all the, all the dots because he does yes. that with us when he pursues us. Like yeah. In my book, I call him the pursuer. And he does that like little breadcrumbs, like a dot to dot. And then he he connects all the dot to dots. And then that revelation is like, we see what it is. And we go, oh, and then yes. I like how you said he dropped the mic. It was essentially <laughs> him dropping a mic inside my head. And I, I and where I really just lost it was, you know, like, I'm just sitting here thinking about all this in amazement, again, at this Mexican restaurant over breakfast, tacos and coffee, this other conversations going on. And I'm having this like revelation of all the things in my life that are big pivotal moments. And God has been there. And, you know, whether I realized it or not, he had been there. Even when I was in Iraq, you know, a couple of times I'd run, I was about to run into a space to go, you know, talk to somebody or yell at somebody. And then I'd hear a voice behind me yell doc. And I turn around, there's nobody there. But then where I was going to be, I'd hear bullets whipping past there. And I turn around and see bullets kicking up dust. And I'm like, I was supposed to be there, but because I heard somebody called Doc, I turned around and there's nobody behind me and nobody fessing up that they called my name. And that happened twice while I was in Iraq, again, before I was a Christian. And so that was in my head. And so all these moments are popping into my head. Uh, This is where I was in your life to get you where you are now. I'm like, wow, that is so cool. And then the thing that got me just blubbering like an idiot was God saying, but now you're going to see when I show up going forward because I'm not done. And that's when I was like, oh my gosh, like, (laughs) like if this is what I've seen so far when I wasn't mindful of or sensitive to God being in my life, what's it going to be like when I am sensitive to when God's in my life, moving around and making all these things click. And um, so far, so since 2007, my family can tell you, yeah, dad gets choked up really easily. And it's because 
when these moments happen like this and I get to see where God had a hand in like five or six different people's lives, going back into the history of their lives just to come together to help this one person in need in this one moment in a very unique way. I'm just like, oh, how can you not? <laughs> how can yeah. you not believe in God? Like when you see all that click into place, it's just like, that's a miracle right there. Like it's not this obvious like light and angels and, you know, superpower lasers and stuff. It's all these little <laughs> motions that come into play and they click in a moment yeah. where statistically it shouldn't happen. And, and there it was. I'm like, oh, so yeah. That's well, let's the- jump ahead to where you're at now. Yeah. You're the CEO of BTR Impact. You mm-hmm. are a podcaster for Beyond the Rut, and you have a book by the same name. So what led you into doing this whole Behind the Rut thing? And why did you pick that name? And, and why all the things of Behind the Rut? Tell us about yes. that. So a bunch of little things, again, all coming together to this <laughs> one pivot point in my life again. Um yeah, I'd, I'd remembered my promise back when I was 14 years old. And and since then, I'd added the Dugan family crest motto by virtue and valor. And to add to that, to live for Christ. And so now it's like, how do I live for Christ? With virtue and valor. That's the Dugan commitment here. And so I stay involved with the men's ministry. Uh, my wife and I get involved with family life, a marriage ministry, and we serve together. Uh, we attend a bunch of their retreats, their weekend to remember retreats together. Because we've always had that promise, our marriage is going to stay strong. And, and we do that so our kids have parents who love on them and help them have the environment they need to grow into the people they need to be. And somewhere in there, I decided I need to have a podcast where I'm showcasing authenticity as a man, as a Christian man who didn't grow up a Christian, who is trying to be the best Christian he can uh, for himself and, and for God. I need to start a show. And it wasn't beyond the rut. It was another one called Family Time Q&A. It was like, what if there's a show where the man is dumb enough to let his kids come on unscripted, ask him anything, and whatever comes out of his mouth, that's the episode. And there's no punishment to his kids because they're going to come back for the next episode and the next and the next and the next. And my kids were somewhere around 10 and 12 years old, 9 and 11, something like similar to my brother's age and mine when my dad was you know, having his world fall apart on him. Um, here I am like, hey let's put me under the microscope on a podcast and let people listen to that. And my son was like, do we have to, my daughter was like, let's do this. <laughs> um, so for 86, kind of like your little brother. I mean, your, your son was a little bit more like you and your daughter's yeah. a little bit more like the, your brother. Boldly, like, yeah, sure. Boldly jumping in. Yeah. This is the thing that needs to happen. Uh, so 86 episodes later, we did a rotation. It was like my daughter, then my wife, then my son, uh, I would ask, they would ask me a question I wasn't ready for. And then we'd flip it. I'd ask them a question they weren't ready for. And then that was our episode. And I didn't think a lot of people were listening to it. If anything, I wanted to capture these moments so that when my kids were older, like in their thirties, they could listen to this and not only hear themselves, but hear this is where dad was at this time when he was our age. And, and so I was wanting to capture that for them. Very similar to that last letter I wrote or what I thought was my last letter to them. And so that's why I got into beyond our uh, family time Q and a now it's starting to pod fade at the end of those 86 episodes because my son's now in middle school at the time. So he, he's too cool to be on a podcast. Anybody can see Uh, my daughter's heavily involved with ballet. So she's more than busy and my wife is her driver. So, uh, (laughs) so there, there was no time to really get them on the microphone to record in the first place. 
But then my friend Brandon from men's ministry comes forward. He's like, Hey, I want to start a show that helps men get unstuck in the ruts in their lives so they can be the best husband they can be, serve their community for Christ, be the best father they can be. They already got all the other boxes checked for success, but they, they feel unfulfilled. They feel stuck. And I want to show that brings those conversations to the forefront, helps them see that it is possible to succeed in your career or your business and also succeed in your faith walk and with your family. And I want to bring all those together. I was like, I'm in. So that was in 2015, August, 2015. We launched our first episode. We're now in the eighth year. Now it's just me on the show. Um, Sean was the third guy on the team. He quit somewhere in the 16th episode because he had other things he needed to focus on. Uh, five years into the show, Brandon realized he had five grandkids now. He didn't when we started, but he now has five grandkids. And on a Saturday when we're supposed to record, he'd rather be with them. <laughs> and when he's supposed to be a guest on other people's shows, he'd rather not. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, we got to have a talk here. Like, where are you? And he, he felt bad for saying it, but he really wanted to be connected with his grandkids. And I said, Brandon, the whole essence of the show, Beyond the Rut, is that we're thriving in our families more than we're thriving in our career. And if we look at Beyond the Rut as a career, your family takes precedent. And he's like, I feel better about that. So I'm going to step down, Jerry. I'm like, okay, good. Uh, but now that you said that, I don't feel it on my heart to step down. <laughs> you own everything. Can I take over ownership? And he said, absolutely. And so he had passed everything on to me. And on top of that, he'd already paid for everything in advance. This is like January of 2021. Mm. He'd already paid for everything a year in advance. And he's like, go make it, go make it worth, get my money's worth out of that. And I was like, cool. So I've been regrouping. So 2021 was all about regrouping the show. I was working full time as a leadership development uh, team director. So I was in charge of a team that went to other departments and helped build team cohesion, build servant leadership type of principles, um, handle, uh, what do you call that? Conflict, those kinds of things. So that's what I did for a living. And on the weekend, I'd produce the show Beyond the Rut and help people get unstuck in their lives, create a life worth living in their faith, family, and career. And, and then 2022 was about, okay, now I've, I need to grow the show. And so how do I do that? And I uncovered, I found the original business plan for Beyond the Rut year one. After year one, we were supposed to have a book that was the manifesto of the show. Uh, and, and to share with people, this is why the show exists. Here are the key lessons we've learned from doing the show for the first year. This is where we're going into the future. And I realized seven years later, nothing had been written, nothing had been published. And my, my uh, Christian podcasters coaching group challenged me. And they said, Jerry, 2022 is the year that you put a book out. No excuses. What's holding you back? And I told them, um, like, great. What could you do to make this happen? I'm like, well, I could do this, this, and this. Great. So by August, I'd committed to a, an actual book coach, a company called selfpublishing.com. They put me on a plan to get this thing up and running. And by March of 2023, I get this thing published, Beyond the Rut, Create a Life Worth Living in Your Faith, Family, and Career. And it walks to that framework of the five Fs of your life, your faith, your family, your fitness, your finances, and your future possibilities. So what kind of growth are you putting yourself through? <clears throat> and it's in order of prefer or, um, priority. So mm -hmm. put your faith first. If you're, if you're pursuing God, you got a healthy sense of faith, healthy sense of worth of whose you are, then you're going to show up to your, your family 
your wife first, then your, your children, your spouse and partner first, then your children in that order, you're going to show up in a healthy context because the more healthier you are with your partner, the better environment you're providing for your kids. And as you're raising your kids, they're the ones impacting the next generation. I don't have to be the guy that teaches the next generation how to live. They're going to learn from other teens, like teenagers learn from other teenagers. So if you want to influence teenagers, influence your kids to be the best people they can be who have empathy, great listening skills, great communication skills, and have an example of healthy relationships from their parents. And then they can pass that on to their friends. Um, and that, that was our plan in our own family. And it's kind of what we talk about it beyond the rut in the book. Uh, a few hundred copies have gone out in just the first few months. And I, I'm touched by the people who email me back and say, wow, I didn't realize, like I was reading it because you're a friend of mine. I didn't realize I was stuck in my own rut. I was like, hey, when I was writing the book, I didn't realize I was stuck in my own rut. Um, I was working a job that great pay, great title, great trajectory into executive leadership. But it was putting me into a funk physically, emotionally, so much so that when my kids, my adult kids would come visit us, they would say to my wife after they left, are you and dad okay? And my, my wife was like, what? No, we're fine. Why, why do you think we're not okay? Well, dad seemed a little snippy, like every time you asked him a question. And if you got him talking about work, it was like, that's it. He just went down this spiral. And she goes, oh, yeah, he, he is not enjoying work right now. The, they got a big project going on. And his boss is just making life less easier than it needs to be. <laughs> Harder than it needs to be. And, um, and it's just not going well. And they're like, okay. But if it gets worse, we got an extra bedroom. And I was like, and when my wife told me that in uh, wow. September, early September, I, I just took a seat. And she's like, and, and Jerry, I'm not mad at you. I'm like, I know, but I have a show called Beyond the Rut that talks about this type of thing. How have I not noticed it's happening in my own life? She goes, well, you're so busy helping other people that you don't always see yourself sometimes. Wow, that's so much the story. People talk about a mechanic's car is broken down and right? <laughs> You know, doctor doesn't take care of himself and people that what they do for others, they tend to lack to do for themselves. Yes. And so it was this aha moment for me. I hadn't even finished Beyond the Rut, the book yet uh, in terms of writing it. And I'm realizing I'm going through my own rut. And my wife is saying to me, I want my husband back. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you're going to get him back. So what do we do now? And she's like, quit your job. And this is Miss, make sure you have another job before you leave the first one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she's like, I'd rather, I want my husband back so badly. I'd rather you leave this job now. I know we've got the money to, to live for a certain number of months. You can figure that out. Tell me what the plan is. I'm with you. And so I wrote up my, my letter of resignation like that day. Wow. I still had to wait a day to go back to work to turn it in. But she already noticed like this lightness in myself that I had a bounce back on my step. And then I told her the plan. I'm like, look, we can go this many months if um, we cash in this, this, and this, and that'll give me this much room to get a new job. If I want a new job, if I want to start a new business, it'll help me this long and help us this long. And if we cash this other thing in, we can go longer. And if we go beans and rice, we can go like a year and a half to two years, <laughs> a sabbatical. She goes, uh, let's back off the beans and rice plan. We'll leave that for last. And uh, worst case scenario, and I say, great. And if we just say to heck with it, we can cash in everything and just live like kings for a, 
a year. <laughs> like, no, that's not, that's not wise either. <laughs> What's that six month plan? <laughs> like, okay, cool. So we did the six month plan, take three months off and then three months to go find a new job was the original plan. Um, but during the time off, it just became clear. We had people from the outside give us some godly advice and, uh, and it just made sense. Start your own business, teaching others about servant leadership, communication skills, healthy team, di- team dynamics. That's where BTR Impact came to be. And at the same time, Beyond the Rut launched. And you know, my hope is people look at their own lives and say, look, I, yeah. I am stuck in a rut. I am stuck in a generational cycle here that I don't want to keep on going. How do I break this thing? How do I set a new direction for my family? Put that stake in the ground. And that's what Beyond the Rut's all about. BTR Impact's the same thing because it's not just about how do I have impact with my teams? How do I have impact with my life? Like I want to succeed at work and I also want to succeed at home. And I want my teams to have the same experience. Be successful at work because you're going to spend a lot of your time here. But never let work be the crutch over your family and and let your family be the priority. And and that's my hope and my dream is to help people. That's BTR Impact LLC, right? Yes, yes. So it's the podcast and the leadership development merged into one platform. And uh, yeah, it's the whole person because, you know, whether you're the boss at work or you're the guy at home, you're the guy, you're still the person wherever you are and you got to be happy with yourself and, and love yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's important. I'm, I'm, I celebrate with you that you took that step that you listened to what your kids said to your wife and what your wife said. So thank you. Cause now you're helping so many people. Um, yeah. Is there something that you want to make sure that the listeners know before we tie this up with a bow? Oh man. Uh, the biggest thing is what's been my tagline for the last couple of years. And that's life is just too darn short to live stuck in a rut. So mm-hmm. if you, if you wake up in the morning, you dread going to work. If you wake up in the morning, you just dread facing other people now's a great time to take a look at that. What's going on in your faith walk? What's going on in your family life? What's going on in your fitness journey? Um, Your finances, like what are you worried about? And then what needs to change so that your load is lighter, your relationships are stronger, and you're living a more fulfilled life. So now's the time. That's awesome. So how can people connect with you? Are you on socials? What's your website? I'll, I'll put things in the show notes, but just so you can say it verbally for people. Yeah. Uh, if you're just interested in the podcast, Beyond the Rut, beyondtherut.com is that hub for that. So all the podcast episodes, any blog posts that are inspired by the episodes, you'll find there. Links to my social media accounts are all there at beyondtherut.com. Uh, if you're interested in me talking at your organization about servant leadership, uh, how to build a team that has reduced turnover, stronger team cohesion, or just happy life all around. Uh, that's btrimpact.com. If you forget that and all you remember is beyondtherut.com, that's fine too because I have a link going from that page to the business page. So either way, it'll work out. Beyondtherut.com is probably the best single yeah. one spot. Wonderful. One-stop shop. It's always helpful yeah. when it's like that. So, well, this has been amazing. So much to share. You've been through so much. You've come out so strong and been very vulnerable. Thank you for making yourself vulnerable for my listeners today. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. My pleasure, Danielle. Now I look forward to having you on my show. Oh yeah, we'll do that. And my listeners, thank you for listening to this. I imagine you're going to have to take it in bites because we just went for a very long time, probably one of our longest, but it was worth it. 
Thank you for being with us today. And always remember, I love you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Victorious Souls Podcast. You matter and you are loved. We'd love to connect with you further. So please visit us at daniellebernock.com and grab a copy of Danielle's free audiobook. And remember, only you can change your life. No one can do it for you.